Good morning again. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 115. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Uh, if you have been here, you already know, but we've been working through the Psalms little by little over the past several months. Uh, we uh, haven't been hitting every Psalm. There are 150 of them in total, but we have been uh, hitting, I don't want to say the highlights as if some were lowlights, but you know, we've been hit trying to get a sense of this book of Psalms as a whole as we have gone through from week to week. So this week we come to Psalm 115. And before I read that, uh, let's pray together. Oh, our Father, we do come to you this morning to hear from you, to hear your voice, uh, certainly not my voice, uh, but you speaking to us in the scriptures. And we pray, Father, that you would do just that, that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit, uh, that you would give me words to say, that you would give us ears to hear, uh, that we would have eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory, and that we would learn to trust and rest more fully in him both in life and in death. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Well, one of my favorite animated movies growing up was the Disney movie Aladdin. And there are two parts in that movie where the character Aladdin says to Princess Jasmine, do you trust me? The second time is when Princess Jasmine figures out that Prince Ali is really Aladdin, uh, which there's some irony there because it's also the moment that she realized he is lying to her about his identity. Trust, or lack thereof, is part of every relationship. Not even just human-to-human relationships, but even human-to-object relationships. When you talk about trust, you mean uh, counting on something to come through, relying on something to be what it seems to be. 
You trust in the integrity of a thing, that that it is what one says it is or as it presents itself to be. Uh, You trust a bridge to be a bridge, and you get you from one side of the river to another. You trust your freezer to keep your ice cream cold, which it does most of the time if it's working. Uh, You trust your house key to open the front door. You trust your spouse to be faithful to his promises. You trust your dog not to bite the hand that feeds her. You trust your friends to keep their implicit promise to maintain your trust, to keep sensitive information private. You trust your university to give you a valuable education. You trust your government to maintain peace and order in society. You trust gravity to hold things down. You trust that the sun will shine tomorrow. Trust means you're taking something at its word or or for what it is. And so life is really all about promises, whether implicit or explicit, and trust. Without trust, uh, life would be a a crapshoot, a a constant shot in the dark. Everything would be uncertain. Without trust, most of us would be paralyzed, unable to move forward one way or another, too unsure of the results. I mean, if I don't trust, will, will my floor hold me if I climb out of bed? Will my clothes cover me if I put them on? Will food nourish me if I eat it? Will books teach me if I read them? Will movies entertain me if I watch them? You see, there's a good deal of trust, both large and small, in life. You may say, oh, I, 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 don't, I don't just trust. I'm a skeptic. I test everything out. Okay, that's fine. But uh, if someone offers you a scoop of ice cream, you may not trust that you will like it. But if you eat it, you trust that it is ice cream and not arsenic. We are creatures built on trust. We all trust some things, many things, at every moment, even if it is only our own selves. So what do you trust? We trust in the promises of life, again, both implicit or explicit. Uh, We trust in the promises of power. Uh, Each thing, each person promises to do or be something for us. To hold us up or cover us over or nourish us, to teach, to entertain, to remain faithful, to come through, to make happy. Ultimately, each promise is to give a little piece of life one way or another. How do you know that those who promise such things can come through? Well, this psalm this morning is uh, both deceptively simple but also deeply profound. Uh, It's about trust, but also about promise and power and even glory, uh, which are some big themes for a relatively short psalm. Verses 8 and 9 are really the turning point in the psalm. Verse 8 says, Those who make them idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. See, this psalm is an exhortation to trust And we're going to look at it through that lens, through the lens of trust. You can find on the back of your bulletin an outline if you want to follow along there. And uh, there we see four questions. And in this psalm, we'll see the answers to four questions. Why should we trust? Whom should we trust? How should we trust? And where does trust end? First, why should we trust? Uh, This, in some ways, is fairly straightforward. Uh, We'll come back to the first verse, which is kind of a heading for the whole psalm. Uh, But I want to start us by looking at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? That's a good question. 
Why should the nation say, where is their God? Uh, Implicit in that question is actually the trials of God's people. Where is your God is a taunt to those who are in trouble. You see this in Psalm 79. Uh, Psalm 79 says, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Why might the nation say that? Well, because God's city, God's nation, God's people were in ruins. And so sometimes even God's people say, God, where are you in the midst of all this? Psalm 42 verse 3 makes it personal. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why do we need to trust? Well, we need to trust because God seems absent and trouble is upon us. Trust here is about trusting something to bring you through your troubles. This world is broken, and of course we broke it, by the way, but the result is sin's guilt and bondage and curse. Where do you feel the curse? Wherever you experience brokenness and trouble and trial and frustration and bondage, you have two basic options, despair or trust. We trust in part in order not to despair. And so in the face of trouble, we ask, who will bring me through? How can I move on? What will rescue me from all the pain and trouble and toil that I face? So why should we trust? Well, because we must trust something or else live in paralyzing despair and such utter hopelessness that we can't go on. And so we trust that something will bring us through, that this is not the end, that we can move forward. Second, whom should we trust? Verse 2, the question comes, where is their God? Well, what is the psalmist's answer? Verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The psalmist's answer is short and confident, and we'll keep coming back to it again and again. But for now, I just want to ask the question, why do the nations not see that? Why do the nations not see that God is in the heavens? Well, because they can't see him. Uh, For the nations, as is so often the case, things are only real if you see them. Israel sees with the eyes of faith. Our God is in the heavens. The nations want to see with the eyes of the flesh. Hence, idols. You know, idols were forms of control. Um, you, You can't control a God that you can't see. Idol makers attempted to make the God, and therefore the God's power, present and manipulatable. Uh, the, the, idea, the, the idea was that idols attempted to harness the power of the gods. So the critique of the prophets and the psalmist is a bit sarcastic. Uh, e- even pagan theologians knew that the idol was not the god. Pagan theologians at their best. 
But nevertheless, the critique still stands. This is the power of your God harnessed in created form. This is your God's presence on earth. What you're looking at is a chunk of wood, a piece of metal, a dumb rock. And so the psalmist critiques the idols in verses 4 through 7. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throats. And you see, his, his implicit conclusion is, why do you trust in what has no power? Why do you trust in what cannot save? Now, we, we tend to laugh at the idolatry of the ancients, but the truth is we do the same things. We think that mystical powers inhabit created things like dollar bills or automatic weapons or naked bodies. We look to the powers in this age that we can act upon and use to further our agendas, whether money or strength or sex or popularity or beauty or humor or academic degrees or social connections. What do we think we will get by these worldly powers? Well, we think we will get life. We think we can find happiness. But, of course, we we know, right? I mean, it's a common saying. uh, Even in a secular age, money cannot buy happiness. But often that is teasingly followed up with, but it can buy, fill in your favorite item here, which is kind of the same thing. So money can't buy happiness, but it can buy coffee, which is kind of the same thing. Or money can't buy happiness, but it can make you awfully comfortable while you're being miserable. Or money can't buy happiness, but it will get you a better class of memories. Or my favorite, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy cows, And cows make milk, and milk makes ice cream, and ice cream makes you happy. But of course we know that's mistaken. Worldly means can accomplish worldly ends, but they they can't accomplish what really matters. Uh, One uh, person tried to bring this out when when, uh, they contrasted the tangible and the intangible by saying money can buy books but not brains. It can buy a house, but not a home. It can buy medicine, but not health. It can buy amusement, but not happiness. It can buy companions, but not friends. It can buy flattery, but not respect. See, even the world knows that there are limits to what we can accomplish by the means of this age. The things of this age cannot buy happiness, and they cannot satisfy the soul. And when we think that the tangibles can accomplish these intangibles, that will lead to disappointment and regret. We're trusting in impotent idols. I know a man who wanted money. He thought it would make him happy. And he set his heart on money and wealth and riches. And he worked hard and he got it. But now what does he have to show for it? Not happiness, just money and wealth and riches. He got the tangible, but that does not accomplish the intangible. Or to put it differently, he got the treasures of this age, but he did not get the treasure that matters or the treasure that lasts. And and notice the the psalmist's final verdict about the power of idols, verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Those who trust in idols will become like them, uh, mute and blind and deaf and immobile. Why? Why? Well, because they they will be dead. Idols cannot save from death. 
As the writer of Ecclesiastes says of the rich and the poor, the wise and the foolish, the bad and the good, death overtakes them all. Money and human wisdom and even your own goodness cannot save you from death. Idols cannot save. So we look at them and we say, this is the power of your God harnessed in created form, a lifeless image that leads to a lifeless person. But where is the power of our God harnessed in created form? Where is our God's presence on earth? Look again at what the the Psalms promises in verses 9 through 16. For those who trust in the Lord, he will be their help and their shield. He will bless them, both small and great. He, the one who created the heavens and the earth, will fulfill his created intentions by giving them the earth and causing them to flourish on it. And yet you might think, don't the the very circumstances of the psalm seem to dispute that? I mean, isn't the problem that God seems absent, that his people suffer, their enemies seem to have the upper hand, they taunt and deride? Israel throughout much of her history, rather than inheriting the earth, was oppressed as a homeless and wandering nation. The lifeless images of the nations led to lifeless people, but was was Israel's God doing any better? Despite the grandiose promises here, could God really deliver? Or in other words, can we trust him? Well, I would only exaggerate slightly to say there is only one reason that we can trust our God, and that is because of the resurrection. Jesus proved that God was worthy of our trust. Jesus, as God in the flesh, came into the world to bear sin in our place as our substitute, taking our punishment for sin. And when Jesus hung upon the cross, his enemies taunted him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. And when Jesus lay in the grave, his enemies could have said, where is his God? But Jesus was remembered by the Father, even in the grave, and raised from the dead. Jesus was blessed to increase, not with physical children, but spiritual. The earth has been given to him, the Son of Man, who now has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus, who trusted in the living God, is not dead, but alive having been raised from the dead. And by raising Jesus, the Father proved that that he is in the heavens, the place of authority, doing whatever he pleases. See, the physical things in which people trust are ultimately powerless, especially powerless to save from death. They cannot do what we think they can do. Whatever they can do is limited to this life, this age, this moment. It will not last. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the presence of our God on earth. He has secured our forgiveness in the cross. He is God's power embodied in human form and seen in his resurrection. And so we look not to lifeless idols, but to the risen Christ. Despite appearances to the contrary, God is in the heavens doing whatever he pleases. He has proven that by raising Jesus from the dead. Therefore, we can trust him. So why should we trust? Well, we we need to trust because the curse assaults us on every side. Whom should we trust? The Lord, the living God, embodied in the risen Christ. The third, how should we trust? We have to go a bit further here uh, 
Because it's easy to say trust in the Lord, but what does trust actually look like? What does it look like from day to day, from moment to moment in the midst of our trials and troubles? So I want to explore just for a minute what what this means to trust. We're being exhorted to trust in the Lord. What does that mean? The reason we can trust is because God is in the heavens doing whatever he pleases. He raised Jesus from the dead. He has the power to keep his promises. We can trust him. But what does that look like? The, the worldly counterfeit to trust, of course, is, is I am in the heavens doing whatever I please. And I trust myself. I trust my idols. I trust the created order to give me life and happiness. The churchly character, on the other hand, is God is in the heavens, so I'll put my feet up and just relax and let him work. So the, the, the worldly counterfeit, right, the lie is... This world has the power I need to make it through the day and find happiness and hope. And so I lust after the powers of this age, getting them so I can get life and happiness. As a result, I'm willing to to cross any line in order to manipulate and connive and control to get what I want because I don't trust the Father. I trust myself. And so I'll use or read misuse the gifts God has given me in order to get what I want. How do you know if you are relying on the powers of this age or trusting in God who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead? Well, often if our life is characterized by either taking over or giving in or covering up, we are trusting in the powerless idols of this age and not the power of the living God, right? If your life is characterized by seeking to take over, right? If you move into every situation and try to control, whether through perfectionism or manipulation, or anger. These are all attempts at using the powers of this age to take over, to make life work for you your way. And this may look like yelling and screaming to get your way, or it may look like obsessively learning everything you can when you get a sickness so you can feel like you're in control because you've done your homework and checked the Internet. For me, it's often uh, going over my sermon just one more time to make sure that it's right. But maybe you're not the kind that takes over. Maybe you're the kind that gives in. Maybe your life is characterized by, not by control and manipulation, but by fear and despair. Well, what are these? Fear and despair are just the, the residue of trust in the powers of this age after you've realized their emptiness. If I trust in my academics to attain happiness and I end up disappointed in a dead-end job, I have realized the powerlessness of this age, but I have not lifted my eyes to God, and so I end up hopeless, despairing, and afraid. Or there's yet a a third manifestation of trust in the powers of this age. Maybe you've seen the emptiness of your powers, you've felt the despair and the fear of your own weakness, but you've so hated the taste of weakness that you've decided to live a lie. And so you self-medicate. You try to cover over. Instead of taking over or giving in, you you cover up. You do whatever you can to, to look good and to feel good. You focus on looks and feelings because at least that's something you can control. And so you can pretend that things are okay. You make yourself drunk on family life or popularity or academics or, of course, drugs or alcohol, doubling down on the idols that disappointed you in the first place, in the hopes of losing yourself and forgetting your pain in your work, your play, or your drunken stupor. 
See, our default is to trust in what our eyes can see and use that to to take over. And when that fails, we give in or cover up. We live in anger and manipulation or fear and despair or excessive indulgence rather than lifting our eyes to heaven. We don't like the idea that the powers of this age are powerless and that the power of God is seen in the cross and known through our weakness. And so we do what we can to take over or we give in and cover up. But the psalm calls us to do none of those things but to trust in the Lord. And yet the error when we realize, okay, I'm not in the heavens doing what I please. I'm not in control here. But God is in the heavens doing what he pleases. The error then is to shift from self-reliance to passivity. But trust is not passivity. Self-reliant activity is when I'm consumed with human remedies and human powers, anxiously seeking to gain control of life. But dependent activity is not inaction. The scripture calls us to act, right? To, To do good to all men, to let our light shine before others, and to use our gifts to serve. Dependent activity is when I act, but rest in God for the outcome. And so what does that look like? Well, what does it look like when you are sick? It doesn't mean that we don't look for present-age solutions to present-age problems. That's a double negative there, right? So uh, if you are sick, by all means, go to the doctor. We don't passively say, well, if God wants to heal me, he will. We actively look for solutions, both from doctors and from God through prayer. Dependent activity does mean we, we don't hinge our happiness on being well in the present age. We know that God will help. Verses 9 and 10 and 11 tell us that. We know that he will bless. Verses 12 and 13 say that. So we trust his timing. Jesus had to go through the grave before the resurrection and through the cross before the crown. But now Jesus has been given the earth. And so we trust and we wait, even as we seek in as much as it is in our ability to put things right in the meantime. And so I can seek medical help, but I can also rest in the face of its limits, knowing that my God is in the heavens doing whatever he pleases. David Pallison, uh, one uh, biblical counselor who died recently of cancer, had this testimony. He had, he had gone through all the, the medical means possible. He had gone the medical route, but he knew its limitations, and he trusted his father in the midst of that because his hope was not in health and happiness in this life. He believed that as Jesus rose, so will he. So we act in faith, trusting God's power to work through our weakness and trusting God's timing in our circumstances, knowing that though we die, yet we will live with Christ. And so we don't hinge our happiness and hope on all being well in the present age because we know that God is at work. He will put all things right in the end. So we are free to engage without fear or the need to control, which actually means we're free to engage in love. We're free to engage without fear. I don't need to fear sickness. I don't need to fear the downfall of our culture. I don't, I don't need to fear that my kids are, are, are going to go down the wrong path. I don't need to fear economic collapse or joblessness or backstabbing friends or terrorism or world war. It's not that those things might not concern me. Some of those things should concern you. It's not that those things won't happen. It's that I can trust God in the midst of them. 
I don't need to try to manipulate and control the political process, right? I can participate as a citizen and trust my father's good and wise plans. I don't need to try to control my kids. I don't need to manipulate by force, yelling and screaming to keep them in line, which is my temptation, and it doesn't work. And I don't need to try to control them by bribery, hoping to keep them close by keeping them happy. I can lovingly instruct and discipline and leave their hearts in God's hands where they truly are. I don't need to try to control my grades if I'm a student in the hopes of graduating at the top, getting the sought-after career, and making the big bucks. I don't need to cheat on tests. I don't need to pull all-nighters studying to the neglect of God or church or family or friends. I can do my work, seeking God's blessing, resting in His sovereign care. Knowing that if the worst-case scenario happens and I flunk out, having done my best, my God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And so we work without anxiety or the need to control, trusting our Father to work through our weakness and in His timing. So why should we trust? Well, we must trust because the curse assaults us on every side. Whom should we trust? The Lord, the living God embodied in the risen Christ. How should we trust? Working acting without anxiety or manipulation because we trust our Father to work through our weakness and in His timing. Well, fourth, where does trust end? It ends, as the psalmist states from the beginning in verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Our trust ends in the glory of God because, as the psalmist says, because He is devoted to us and faithful to His promises. To Him be glory for the sake of His steadfast love and His faithfulness. See, to God be the glory because He keeps His word. He keeps His promises and He will come through. And then look at the last two verses, verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says that the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down to silence. Those who trust in lifeless idols become like them, the psalmist has told us. They go down into silence and they do not praise the Lord. But, verse 18, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore praise the Lord. We will bless the Lord. Well, what's different? What's the difference between us and those who worship idols? Well, according to the psalmist, we're alive from this time forth and forevermore. Here here we have uh, one of those many uh, hints, at the very least, of the hope of eternal life here in the Old Testament. See, not just in this moment will we praise the Lord, but from this time forth and forevermore. Those who trust in lifeless idols become like them, but we trust in the risen Christ, the image of the invisible God, and our hope is to become like Him. The Bible says we, by faith, are being transformed into His image now, and that as He rose, so we will rise from the dead on the last day. We will praise Him forevermore because we will stand in His presence to praise our God for His faithfulness to Christ and His faithfulness to all who are in Christ by faith. You see, we can trust because whatever happens, we will rise and we will praise Him. Friends, praise our Father because of His steadfast love and faithfulness demonstrated in the cross and in the resurrection. Praise Him that though we each must pick up our own cross and follow Jesus, that though this life may be characterized by troubles and trials, we too will rise and be with Him. See, the end of our trust is the resurrection 
and the glory of God. The resurrection will, in one sense, put an end to trust because faith will be turned to sight. We will see him. The glory of God, of course, is the goal of our trust because as God proves himself faithful by seeing his children through, as with Christ, so with us who are joined to Christ by faith in him, we will rise and we will praise him. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, even as we journey through this life and undergo various trials and temptations and struggles and fears and doubts, we pray that you would help us to see you and your faithfulness and your steadfast love in the cross and in the resurrection, and that we would trust, that we would rest in Jesus, that we would see your work in him, and that we would believe in him, our Savior and our Lord. Give us that trust, Father, that we would go through life, not in anxiety and fear or anger and manipulation, but that we would go through life praising you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.